have your Bibles, go with me to Ephesians chapter 6. We'll be in 10 through 13. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. Let's go ahead and jump right in. Paul, writing here, says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His mind. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, stand to stand firm. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that you would help us to see the very real battle that is around us. Help us to wake up. Uh, for your glory. Amen. The first thought I want you to see here, I'm going to begin with this thought, is that we are kind of the, the overarching principle or command even, if you will, at this point, is Paul is saying to us, stand in God's strength with his armor because it's a spiritual battle. Stand in God's strength with his armor because it's a spiritual battle. Now we kind of overviewed 6.10 through like verse 20 last week. And this week we're going to jump into just the first three verses. What I want you to see beginning here is he says, Stand in God's strength with His armor because it's a spiritual battle. We talked about how last week we probably don't see or realize the battle that is going on. That, that there's something, Paul is telling us, that there's something beyond what our human eyes can see. There's something happening. And it's been happening for a long time. And it's not done yet, in a sense. This battle still rages on. I want you to notice kind of three imperatives that Paul gives us, just very quickly here. He says to be strengthened. Just to be strengthened. Like to, to gather strength. To go be strengthened. He's the second imperative is he says to put the full armor of God on. To put on the full armor of God. And notice also in this passage he says to stand. That's, that's not a suggestion. He's not saying I, I hope you stand. He's saying no stand. This is, this is a command. It's an imperative. All of these. Be strengthened. That's not an option. It's not just something for you to do when you're weak or you think you're weak or in the midst of a battle or in the midst of a struggle. No, he's saying you be strengthened. This is something for you to do and for you to do now. Don't wait. Putting on the full armor of God. Again, this is not something that he is suggesting to us. This is an imperative, a command. As one commentator said that these imperatives dominate this entire text. And then the rest of the verses following here will be an explanation of what it looks like 
to do these imperatives. So keep that in mind as we spend the next uh, five, six weeks working through this. That we're getting the imperatives here, and then is explaining what these imperatives look like in the verses that follow. I want you to notice the opening sentence in this passage. It says, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of His might. So that's the imperative. And I want you to notice the second part, how is that appropriated? Like, how does this strength become ours? This is by putting on the whole armor of God. So that's how the strength is appropriated. And then he says, why is it necessary that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil? So that's kind of like the theme sentence, if you will, for this last section. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. How? By putting on the full armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Again, the point, Paul's point here is to stand in God's strength with his armor in the midst of spiritual warfare. You know, the grand imperative for us is that we're unmovable. That we cannot be moved. That we stand strong and firm. If you look at verse 11, you see the word stand. If you look at verse 13, you see the word withstand. Also in verse 13, to stand firm. If you look in the next verse, which we're not working through today, but in verse 14, he talks about stand therefore. I want to give us a caveat, not a caveat, but a kind of a, a warning. As we, talk, as we begin talking about this idea of standing firm in the midst of battle, we have to be careful because we can also stand in the wrong way on the wrong thing. So we have to be careful because if any kind of sin, and especially pride, is accompanying our stand, then we are probably standing on the wrong conviction and likely in the wrong strength. So we just have to be careful. When, we, when he's telling us to stand, his assumption is you're standing on the right thing, on the right conviction, in the right strength. You see the danger? We have to be careful. We're standing on the right thing, the right conviction, in the right strength. So Paul's assumption is that we're, go- that we're doing that. And I'm saying to you that if there's any kind of sin, especially pride, is accompanying your stand, then you probably should reevaluate. So with that assumption that we're standing on the right thing in the right strength, and he says, we are to stand. We are to stand very firmly. We're to not be shaken. We're to be unmovable. So I want to give you some observations about this standing and about this, um, <clears throat> what Paul is telling us here in these first few verses. The first one is this. We're to stand firm together. Like as a church, as the body of Christ, we are to stand firm together. Together we must put on the armor of God. Remember that the context of this passage is not just to individuals. It's to individuals who are a part of a body. This is something they are doing collectively together. Philippians 1, 27-28 says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, 
so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. You see, there's a sense of standing together as the body of Christ against the schemes of the devil. I was listening to a lecture, I forget which conference I was at, by uh, Pastor Ray Ortland Jr. And he was talking about the idea of standing together. And I think it was particularly in the, in the sense of biblical counseling. I, it might have been at CCF, uh, the Christian Counseling Education Foundation Conference. <coughs> but he was talking about how the church, he, uh, one of his main thoughts was something that the church can learn from the LGBT movement in our country today. And one of the things that he brought up was that the, the community, the togetherness, the, the we are warring together against something else is something that the church can look at and go, wow, we don't do well at that. Now certainly, their, their centered and their connectedness is based on the wrong thing. Ours should be on the gospel and the cause of the gospel against the evil forces of this world. That should be the, the <coughs> unifying sense of the church. But nevertheless, we can look and go, wow, they're together. I, none of us would debate that. If you look, social media, in, the, in lawmaking, and, and in politics, and, and in economics, like it's, they're together. And the church is oftentimes more concerned about its preferences and little piddly stuff than realizing that they're in a war. I mean, it's like, it's like, a, it's like a command, you know, like a, a, a soldier... In battle, right, there's, there's guns firing and bullets blazing and, you know, and he's over there worried about one of his, you know, the, the seam on his sock above his toes, you know what I'm talking about? Kind of being a little out of alignment, right? And there's bullets whizzing by his head. So again, we can't take this passage out. What I want you to just to gather this idea is that we're doing this together. This is the body doing together. So you're not just worried about putting on your armor. You're worried about helping a brother and sister put on their armor too. <clears throat> so certainly we have responsibilities as individuals. But again, we can stand firm in unity for the faith of the gospel or for faith in faith in the gospel together. Now, when we talk about any kind of battle or engagement or any kind of altercation, there's kind of two postures to be taken. And I want you to notice these two postures are both represented in this text. There are both defensive postures and offensive postures. The first one I want you to notice is that he commands us to have a defensive posture. And we're to be on the defensive. He says we must resist the devil's temptations. Resist him. The idea here of resisting him is to hold your ground, to not give him an inch. You're just standing firm, feet planted. I'm not going to move. Resisting. Saying to him, I will not yield to your temptation. I will not listen to your lies. I will not budge. I mean, think about how that plays out daily, just in the mind and in the heart. I will not listen to this lie, Satan. I'm, I'm, 
I will not be moved. But think about how often do you find yourself saying that? Like how often do you find yourself honestly resisting Satan on a daily basis? Does that happen? Like are you interacting with life, God, the Spirit at that kind of level? Where I'm no, I'm not going to think this way, Father. This is not honoring to you and Satan. I will not believe those lies. Or do we just kind of go about life? We just kind of do. Even as Christians, we just kind of even do religious things. Not understanding that there's a war going on behind all of that. Even inside of us. We're to have a defensive posture. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, Satan is after you, and you're a fool if you don't realize it. We're to resist him. And I think because oftentimes we don't recognize, we don't realize this battle going on, we just kind of do life without recognizing that maybe this is something I should be resisting. Maybe this is something I should be standing against. So we're to have a defensive posture. Second, we're to have an offensive posture. We're to have an offensive posture. It's both and. We're told in this passage to use the sword of the Spirit. Again, we're going to talk about what all these things look like in the next few weeks. But we're told to use the sword of the Spirit. We're to know the gospel and speak it in the midst of spiritual warfare. Or to know the gospel and to be able to say it and remind people of it and apply it. We're to be able to recognize when the gospel is not being believed. When someone's trusting in themselves and not the Lord. When someone is seeking their own plans and not the Lord's. Recognizing this stuff in our own hearts. Listen, I can tell you that as you engage in an offensive posture with the gospel in the midst of spiritual warfare, you will find often, if not even most often, that people, even proclaimed Christians, do not want to hear the gospel. When you begin engaging them at a level deeper than the surface, saying there's a war going on and we need to engage together at that level. Whether or not you are trusting and living and loving the good news of Jesus Christ, people will not like that. But you shouldn't be surprised. It's a war. There's a battle. My question would be is, are we actually engaging the battle at that level? Are we actually engaging the battle, period? Are we willing to speak the gospel when it needs to be said, whether to believer or unbeliever? Again, that, there's wisdom, there's love, there's tenderness, walking in the Spirit, all those things, right? I, I'm, not, I'm not saying we just go smack people upside the head and in church or outside of the church. No, you, you know what I'm going to say? I'm not saying that. But we're called to engage in warfare with the sword of the Spirit and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
We're to have an offensive posture. We're to have a defensive posture as well. I want to give us a little bit of application on kind of this defensive posture, offensive posture for our body. Three real quick points. First of all, we as people, whether as a church, people even more generally, we tend to stand on the things we think are important and we tend to prefer to waffle around convictionless on everything else. We tend to only take a stand on the things we think are important to us. And then the rest of life, we just kind of like to waffle around in gray land. Now, if you, if you know me, I, I'm willing to admit when there's, there's plenty of gray areas in life, just probably not as many as most of us would like to think there is. He's telling us to take a stand. What are we standing on? Of convictions. But, but are our convictions just narrowly focused? And these other ones we just kind of say to heck with. Or we ignore even. If we're not careful, the convictions that we stand on can become more about us. Particularly when we do them to the neglect of standing on other things that we should be standing on. Second application for us as we think about standing firm. In pride, I think we oftentimes think that we have all the right convictions. Like we have all the necessary convictions and that they're all right. Why else would we never, would we not, why else would we not seek the scriptures like we should? Why else would we not seek counsel and help in our convictions like we should? I think it's because we think we got the battle plan all figured out. Like we look at the battle plan and we go, okay, I got this. I got this. Oh yeah, I've been in church for 10 years. I got this. I know how Satan works. I can see how he's working right now. I got this. I can stand firm. I think we spend most of our, this. This has been my observation as a pastor. <clears throat> we spend most of our time informing others and God of how we are handling the war instead of asking for guidance in how to handle the war. So Paul's concern here is not, hey, tell me how you're handling the war. And Paul's saying, I'm going to tell you how the war is to be handled. Why? Because you know, because you need it. Because you don't have it figured out. Paul's saying you don't have this war figured out. You need help. So then why do we then sit back going, I've got this war figured out. I spend many of my conversations, whether with Rusty or other pastor friends saying, but I, there's a war going on. I don't know what's happening here. Like, I don't know. Help me. I can give you some thoughts. I can give you some ideas, but I need you to help me figure out where, where is Satan moving? How's he executing things? And what's happening? I'm trying to figure out what's going on. I think, we oftentimes think we've got the war figured out. And Paul is telling us to stand for a reason. Because we don't. And he's going to tell us how. Third quick observation is this. 
you have to be able to recognize the devil and his temptations if you're going to resist him. If you're not going to give Satan an inch, you've got to know when he's asking for an inch. If you're going to stand firm, so much of what your elders and other elders, pastors, deal with is simply the result of people not recognizing the work of the devil and therefore not resisting. We have to understand, we, as just individual people, even as sometimes collective people, we don't have all the necessary spiritual discernment to see and recognize when we are dancing with the devil. None of us. I mean, you could be dancing with the devil in a book you're reading. You could be dancing with the devil in a relationship you're having. You could be dancing with the devil in the TV you watch. You could be dancing with the devil in your own heart, in your self-justification. And we need help. We desperately need help to discern these things. Hence, the gospel and the sword of the Spirit and the breastplate of righteousness. Right? That's where we're going. But we have to understand, that's going to be useless to us. Knowing all that's going to be useless to us if we don't understand that we desperately need it. That we lack spiritual discernment. All of us, myself included. I need help spiritually discerning things. So here's the question, right? How was Jesus able to stand firm? How was he able to resist the devil? How was he able to, to proceed without sinning? Clearly, we know that, as we talked about particularly over Christmas, that he knew God, and he knew what God had said about himself and about Satan and about Satan's work. Jesus knew these things. For Jesus, the authoritative norm was the scriptures and what God had said. Like that defined, that's what filtered everything. What has my father said? I believe everything he has said. I'm going to filter everything through what the Lord has said. So Jesus was aware because of the scriptures, because of his trust in the Lord through the scriptures, that he was aware of Satan's antics and Satan's battle. And certainly of God's as well. The next kind of big thought I'd have you think about this morning from this text is that Paul would be telling us we need to be aware of the battle. We need to be aware of the battle. I've already been pushing this thought since last Sunday. But you're going to continue hear- hearing this thought. Because again, if we're not aware of the battle, then all of this breastplate of righteousness stuff and feet readied with the gospel is all going to be pointless. We need to be aware of the battle. First sub-thought there is we need to know our enemy. We need to know our enemy. Now, I'm not doing these in any particular order, but we need to know our enemy. So, let's spend a few moments from here and in 
earlier Ephesians passages looking at who is our enemy. Let's get to know our enemy. Paul's already mentioned the devil, right? Chapter 4, verse 27. And give no opportunity, he says, to the devil. I want you to consider the scriptures and how they describe the devil. You can look these, put, write these passages down and look them up later, but Luke 11 talks about how Satan is the head of the demons and his minions. Genesis 3, the scriptures talk about him as the serpent. John 12 talks about him as the ruler of this world. We also see that one in Ephesians 2 as well. As the ruler of this world. I mean, you understand what he's saying? Like, he's powerful. He's ruling in, in a certain sense. 2 Corinthians 4. It's the God of this age. He's the God of this age. Matthew 13, he's the evil one. I love this. It's also frightening at the same time. Revelation 12, that he's the dragon. He is the dragon. What, what, are, what are these things telling us? That this evil one that Paul's talking about is that he is wicked, that he is powerful. That he's controlling, that he's persuasive, that he's demanding, and that he's commanding. He moves people and agendas. Paul describes the devil as evil. We need armor, we need God's armor because we're facing one who opposes God. Not just one who opposes us, we're just a means to an end. He opposes God. And everything Satan is involved in is for evil. And then I thought about this. And we can go days without considering Satan's involvement around us. That's crazy. If the scriptures are accurate in describing the work of Satan and the evil forces of this world, for us to go days without even considering his involvement, for us to have relationships without being watchful of Satan's work in and around these relationships is crazy. Like, they don't take a break. Again, Ephesians 6.12 says, Against the spiritual forces of evil. Verse 13, Withstand in the evil day. So Paul describes the devil as evil. Let's talk about this a little bit further. In chapter 6, verse 11, the first part, it says this, That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So I want you to see that not only is, is he evil, but the evil one is strategic. He has schemes. He has plans. He's strategic. Some other descriptors. He's wily, not the coyote. He's wily. He's, listen to this, he's subtle. Satan is subtle. He's devious. 
Now, Paul, Paul has already pointed, I'm gonna, we're going to jump back in e, to some earlier passages in Ephesians here for a few moments, because Paul's already pointed out to us some of the ways in which Satan works. Some of the ways in which the spiritual war takes place. Go if, you, if you have your Bibles open, go to chapter 4, verse 25. Chapter 4, verse 25. He says this, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Satan, one of the schemes which Satan uses is he tries to gain a foothold by tempting us to speak falsehood, to speak lies. Whether that's lies to ourselves about who God is, or lies to each other about other people, or lies to each other about the gospel, whatever it is, he tries to gain a foothold by tempting us to speak falsehood. He also tries to gain a foothold by tempting us to believe falsehood. And third, he tries to gain a foothold by tempting us to not speak out against falsehood. Again, these are schemes. This is how Satan works. And we have to have our eyes open so that we can resist these things. We have to have the right convictions and beliefs concerning God so that we can recognize when falsehood is being presented. Notice how he speaks about how the unity of the body, that falsehood hurts. Look what he says. For we are members one of another. And speak the truth to your neighbor. See what Paul says about falsehood? Look what else Paul says about falsehood and when it's spoken from Titus 3, 10 through 11. He says, As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. See, the context here is someone who wants to talk about falsehood. Stirring up endless controversies and, and such. You can go read the first nine verses of Titus 3. And listen to what he says. He says, have nothing to do with it. Why, why would Paul say that? Because it's dangerous. Don't touch it. Stay away. You can't handle it. The truth is, you could even be blind to the works of this. The other thought is that we, we could be dancing with these efforts of Satan and not recognize them. Like that, to me, is scary. So he tries to get a foothold by tempting us to speak falsehood. Second, from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, he tries to gain a foothold by anger. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Satan gains a foothold all the time by anger. But here's where we have to be careful. 
We have to be careful. Anger may not look like a red face and throwing things. We know how to hide anger. And we know how to hide anger really well. Now eventually it comes out. But listen, anger can visibly look calm and collected and even humble or broken. But a person's heart can be controlled by anger even still. So we need to, we need to ask and search the scriptures. How can I recognize anger? How do I see when Satan is trying to work his way in through anger? Whether that's anger in my heart or anger in a brother or sister's heart. Third, he tries to gain a foothold by stealing. By stealing. Verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with everyone in need. Satan, listen, Satan gets a foothold when he convinces God's people that they can have the good life apart from hard work and accountability. The idea here is to do the hard work that God has given us so that we can share with our brothers and sisters, so that we can share with those who are in need. The opposite of that is taking, not doing the hard work, not being faithful in our endeavors. The last one here, an example I'll give, is this. He tries to gain a foothold by tempting us to share in unwholesome talk. Look at verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give what? Grace. Grace to those who hear. Did you hear that? We're to speak only things that are good for building up. Now, that might mean sometimes we speak about uncomfortable things. Right? It doesn't mean that they're always happy, cheery, good things. But they're always for the building up. And building up of who? I mean, the implication is, is those you're speaking to. Not building up of yourself. You see, we can speak oftentimes about struggles we see outside of ourselves simply to cover up or justify what we want. That would be unwholesome talk. But we're to speak for the good of building up others, for the building up of the body. He says, as fits the occasion, right? That it may give grace to those who hear. We're to speak only things that are good for building up. And remember, th- so then on the flip side of this is, do we participate in it? And what do we do when we hear it? Right? Because again, you've got to be able to recognize, listen, this evilness is subtle. It's wily. He's very scheming. So like that means it... it could be happening before your eyes. You don't even see it. 
We need help. We need discernment. We'll talk more about that in a bit. The thing, too, I would encourage you to think about is that when we take part, whatever our role is in unwholesome talk, we probably will not recognize or realize the foothold that Satan has. Like, think about it this way. There are seeds planted whenever Satan schemes. Whenever Satan's at work, we're thinking about unwholesome talk, there are seeds that just get dropped into the soil of your heart. They get planted there. And if those seeds are not rooted out by the gospel, right, resisting, and then remembering the gospel, and rooting them, again, we'll work through this more in the days ahead of what this looks like. But if those seeds are not rooted out, then one day those seeds will bear fruit. It might be days, it might be years, it might be decades. But unless the gospel roots those out, they will fruit someday. And all you did was listen. Maybe you even listened and held accountable, but the seeds were still planted. Like the seeds were still there, they were still heard. This is how Satan gains a foothold. You don't even realize that the seeds are there. So I would encourage you, if you've ever taken part in anything like this, that you go back with the gospel and with help and root out those seeds. Lest Satan grab a foothold. Jones says this, Dr. Jones says this, the, the days are evil. And a man that doesn't realize what they are, or that they are, then he is certain to be defeated. Made me think of the uh, book and movie um, of the necromancer in Middle Earth. Right? I don't know. Has anybody not read or watched Lord of the Rings? Anybody want to admit that? Okay. Like, how does, how does Gandalf fare so well? How does Gandalf fare so well in Middle Earth when the, the evil one, Sauron and the necromancer is lurking around every corner. Clearly there's some outside force working in Gandalf's life where he is recognizing and seeing the work that, Gandalf, or that, that the evil one is doing. Why? He's, he's the one that comes, right, and says there's an evil that's coming and no one believes him, right? There's something happening and, and it's going to take over Middle Earth and but if we don't do something about it, and, oh, no, we can't do that, and no, we, we'll be fine, and these walls have held for ages, and blah, 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 blah. And what's happening is Gandalf sees it, and he, he's resisting it, and he's leading others, even though they think he's crazy, to resist it. You see, Satan, guys, can make things look attractive and even desirable and he can distort the truth, even camouflaging the evil. One commentator I read this week said, he can make it look innocent. And we know none the better. So not only does the evil one scheme, not, is he, not only is he strategic, but he also wrestles. He wrestles. Like the word that for wrestling here 
is the idea of like up close, intense battle filled with manipulation and strategy. One person I read this week said, The devil is not firing laser-guided missiles from a distance. He is upon us. Like he's upon you. He's upon your family. He's upon your kids and upon your church. He's right up in our faces. Sometimes you probably even invite him in. Luke 22, verse 31 through 32 says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I, speaking this to Jesus, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. We see that Satan is upon Simon. And Jesus, it's interesting here, I, this is a side note, maybe for another time, but like, just like Job, Satan does, Jesus doesn't tell Satan to leave. He prays for Peter's strength. He pay, prays that he would resist. And then in after his resisting, he would then go strengthen his brothers. Again, how do we recognize when he's right in front of our face? If it's a wrestling match and not a, a shooting of missiles. If it's an intense battle filled with manipulation and strategy. How do we, how do we know this? Again, just pieces we're building here, but you've got to know the word. Jesus, the word, his words. Some quick thoughts. Is Jesus being exalted in the situation? Is the person laying down flesh? Their flesh. Is there love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, right? Walking in the Spirit. Are these things happening? Are they visible? Right? Again, trying to discern. Are we walking? Are we wrestling with the evil one? What's happening? So we need to spend much time in the scriptures, in prayer, and in good counsel, trying to discern how Satan is at work, even in our day. Because like some of his schemes may not be exactly the same as they were thousands of years ago. I mean, at the root they are. Falsehood, anger, those things haven't changed. But the way he goes about those has changed. We need to know what Satan's work looks like today. You know, I, 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 just as a personal testimony, I've personally found that I often meet serious spiritual opposition on Sundays that I'm preaching. Usually not before, usually after. Sometimes on Monday. I've also found it when we preach on something that's particularly offensive to the flesh like things like authority and submission and, and well, here's what here's the deal like I'm thankful in a certain way for those because what it does is it forces me I know Russ as well to run to God's word to run to his word to pray Pray. 
so that we can have the grace of Christ to empower the stand. I'm thankful for that. Otherwise, I'd probably just work in my own strength. You see, our own strength, though, will not work. We can't stand against. If Satan is God's enemy, we can't stand on our own strength against him. And Paul tells us this very clearly in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's where we're to stand. That's where we're to find our footing at. When I think about building houses and, or cabins and things like that, you have to build in this area, you have to set what's called a footer. And it's basically like a little 16-inch wide sidewalk, essentially. It's like six foot deep or six inches deep, 16 inches wide. And that chases the perimeter of a house. But in this area, it has to be like 36 inches roughly deep. Why? Because as the ground freezes like it is right now, and then as it expands and contracts with the temperature, the dirt and such shifts, and it can shake the foundation of the house. And so what happens, a house gets built on footers that are down below where the, f- the contraction and the, uh, and the ex- expansion of the dirt takes place. Otherwise, you'd have houses that shift and move, and, and we still see that. But you build footers. You have a firm foundation. The strength of the house, at least a lot of it, is on where it's standing. So we must be, as Paul says, strengthened by the Lord. Otherwise, we will crumble when the evil one tempts us. You ever thought about why you give in to temptation? Whether it's in your thought life or actions or whatever happens, you give in to temptation. You're standing on the wrong strength. I mean, there's other factors at work there, but at the very basis, foundation, you're standing on the wrong strength. Like, it's not, the strength is not in our resources and ability. It's not in how long we've been Christians. I would even argue it's not even in how much we know the Bible, although that has a big part in it. The strength, listen, the strength is in our union with Jesus Christ and His mighty power. The strength is in our union with Jesus. Ephesians 1.19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might? His power toward us who believe. Believe what? Jesus. The gospel, the good news of Christ, that I can't save myself and only God can. Only God can rescue me. 2 Timothy 2.1, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in where? In Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. He talks about this being a good soldier of Jesus Christ. This passage, particularly in 2 Timothy, has been very encouraging. We are called to look in the right place to the right person for strength. Jesus saying, yes, I'm weak, but I don't have to remain weak. I will find my strength in 
the Lord. How do we do this? How do we, I know it feels like I'm just kind of kicking this can down the road, but how do we do this? At the risk of sounding oversimplistic, we must remember who we are and what is ours in Christ. Remember who we are, who God is, and what God has done in us, in Christ, through Christ. Like we must know, listen, we must know the ins and the outs of our union with Jesus. Uh, so Jesus, when in, this, in his temptation, right? Uh, Jesus knew the ins and the outs of his relationship with the Father. How do we do that? How do we, how do we know the ins and the outs of our union with Christ? We touched on this last week. We do that by putting on Jesus, who is what? The Word. The Word. We put on the Word. How do we know the ins and outs? How do we know who we are and what is ours? How do we know who the Father is? How are we strengthened in the Word? By studying the Word. Jesus Himself said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's the bread of life. This is the same author who calls Jesus the Word. So we need the Lord's strength. So we want to talk about in the weeks ahead, then how do I, how do I put on this word? How do, I, how do I know this word and put on this word and stand in the strength of the union I have in Jesus Christ? That I am a part of this vine. I am a branch and he is the vine. How do I do that? But for now, we need to know that the Lord is our strength, not Standing on ourselves. And the last thing I want to remind us of this morning is this. We need to remember that Jesus has defeated the devil. He has been defeated. Like he's been defeated. Amen? Like he's been defeated. Like we don't face an enemy who still has a chance at victory. He's been defeated. So why do we go into battle? Like, like, let's just strengthen us. Like, imagine going into war knowing that there's absolutely no possible way the other person can win. Matter of fact, it's such a, such a reality, it's such a truth, it's such a probability that's as if he has already been defeated. And you go into battle. Think about the strength, the optimism, the hope. Now, here's the reality. We, we talk about the already, not yet. In one sense, G Satan has already been defeated. It's not a probability. It's not a, it's not a, a, a debate of statistical chances. He has been defeated. He's done. We don't face him. Notice that Paul, listen, Paul did, listen, Paul's talking about war. He's talking about wartime. He's talking about spiritual battle. But notice what he never says. He never tells us to go win the battle. He never tells us that the war is ours to win. Why? Because it's already been won. We don't fight this battle as if Satan is still 
undefeated. He tells us, though, to what? To stand firm. To stand firm as victors in Jesus Christ. That's what he tells us to do. To stand firm. So how do we stand firm? We stand firm by faith in the word. The word. As we look through the battle and see that the victory has already been won. Like we look, we gaze, and we see. Right? Well, there's something beyond our vision. There's a spiritual war here. But then what do we see beyond that? The defeat. This one person I read said this. We are called into a battle that has already been won, but where the defeated party is not easily surrendering. He is going down hysterically. That's the battle. That's what we're facing. But you see, we fight with confidence. Why? Because ultimately, everything will be submitted beneath the feet of Jesus. One person I read this week said, we're just part of the cleanup crew. We're just part of the cleanup crew. Strength is ours by faith. Listen, as we look at the cross, as we look backward and then forward, we look back to the cross and we see our enemy defeated at the cross. And then as we look through the dust of the battlefield and gaze upon our Savior safely seated at the right hand of the Father, we anticipate one day Him leaving that seat and coming down finally put the enemy away and to take us home. That's how we fight battles. We put on that word and we believe that truth in the midst of whatever it is that we're fighting. But as I said, we need to recognize that we're in a battle and recognize what it looks like so we can be aware and we can fight. Fight the right way on the right strength knowing who we are in Christ and knowing His victory is sure. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You that we fight not as ones worried about the outcome, but we fight as ones knowing that You have secured the final resting place of your foe. You have secured the final resting place of our foe. And that's how we fight. We fight as ones who have hope. We fight as ones who recognize there is a fight. And that there's more important things than our twisted socks. Father, we also recognize that we don't fight in our own strength. Father, maybe there's many of us this morning that need to repent for fighting in our own strength. When we do so, we say we don't need your strength, Father. We don't need it. And so we fight in our own strength. And then we fail. And we bring dishonor to you, Father. Father, we don't fight alone. 
Father, we are a people who desperately need the work of your son, Jesus. And so even in these moments, Father, point our hearts to believe in him, to trust in him, to trust in his work, to trust that he has defeated your, uh, uh, your foe, and that, Father, our foe has nothing to throw against us when it comes to the judgment. Now give us the grace to stand and the eyes to see the war. And more importantly, not just eyes to see the war, but eyes to see your son Jesus in his name.